So most of us rely very heavily on our sight. Uh, most of us are very visual people. Not all of us, but most of us are very visual. We, we use our eyes to navigate the world. Most of us do. But the problem with relying only on our eyes to navigate this world is our eyes can play tricks on us. In fact, there are artists that use optical illusions just for the sake of playing tricks on us. So let's go to this next slide. So we've got a couple slides with some optical illusions. Now, the cool thing, is anybody seeing some black dots up there on the screen right now? As you, as you look at the screen, do you, now what happens when you try to find the black dot? Like you see a black dot, you look over to focus in on the black dot, and what does the black dot do? It disappears. That's an optical illusion. Your mind is being tricked into thinking there are black dots, when in all honesty, there are not black dots. Now, nobody actually knows why this happens. There are a couple different theories, but nobody knows why you see black dots. Let's go to the next slide. This is another cool one. Are those parallel lines that are running at an angle? Do, do those look parallel? Or do they kind of look like they're off a little bit? They're, they're off a little bit? I don't know. I brought, hopefully this will help. I'm going to try not to touch the screen. But now when I hold that up, does that all of a sudden look like there might be a little bit more parallel? It's kind of crazy, huh? Like these are actually, these lines running at this angle are actually parallel. But the other lines, the dashes in there, make your mind think that they are off, that they're not parallel. That's a pretty cool one, huh? That's one that you could probably draw at, your, uh, at home on your own. Okay, let's see the next one. Okay, which line is longer? The same. Some people have already seen this. Some people are just that smart. Yes, they're the same. Yes, they are the same. Uh, but the way the arrows are made actually makes you typically think that the lower one is longer. All right, let's go to the next slide. All right, so on the same lines of the arrow, uh, which one, which ball, uh, center ball is bigger? Neither is bigger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, are they the same? No, is there going to be a heated debate about this right now? They are actually the same. The, the one on this, your left, it looks smaller because the balls on the outside are bigger. But, and the one on our right looks bigger because the balls on the outside are smaller. But they are actually the same size. Maybe it would help if I held up my hands and you can kind of see, I don't know. Does that help? All right, let's go to the next one. This one's just cool. This one just, it just doesn't, just kind of blows your mind a little bit, right? As you look through it, and it looks like there's a part that seems like it should be further back, but clearly it's actually out in front. But wait, it should be further back. It kind of blows your mind a little bit. Let's look at the next one. Woo! This is what you're going to stare at for the rest of the sermon, by the way. So... <laughs> I could just kind of wrap things up because I know you're not going to pay attention to what I have to say anymore. Uh, so some people look at these and it actually looks like the lines are moving. Uh, if you kind of relax your eyes, the lines are not moving. This is just a solid picture. But also, are these getting smaller? Are the lines as they go across getting smaller and bigger? Are they, once again, parallel lines? They are 
parallel lines, but it sure does look like, man, it's, it just really looks like, I don't know how well you can see it on this screen. I'm looking back at the TV, and man, it really looks like they're way off there. But let me hold up this again. Does that help? Make it look like you can see how they're actually parallel. They're not getting bigger. They're not getting smaller. They're parallel, and they're not moving. So all of this to say that we really trust our eyes. I don't know about you, but I really trust my vision. I really trust my vision to navigate this world, and yet my vision can be tricked. My eyes can be tricked. Our eyes can be easily tricked, but oftentimes we don't think that they're being tricked. And that's actually one of the most dangerous places you can be. If you think you see everything clearly, if you think that your eyes can't be tricked, it's actually way easier to trick your eyes. If you think you can't be tricked by optical illusions, it's actually easier to trick you with optical illusions. One of my mentor pastors used to always say, if you don't think you are seducible, then you are seducible. In fact, it's one of the easiest ways to become seducible is by thinking you're not seducible. And that's true with our vision as well and how we navigate the world. If we don't think we can be tricked, it's actually easier for us to be tricked. And that is a metaphor that Jesus will use in our teaching today as we walk through, as we continue through our series called Following a Study Through the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll pick up in Matthew 6, chapter 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So at first reading, this doesn't seem like it really fits in with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been laying the case that Jesus is actually refuting self-righteous legalism. So the Pharisees, if we go back like we do every week, Jesus is standing up and and he's teaching to the uh, uh, disciples just beyond him. Beyond the disciples are the multitudes of people. And just beyond the multitude of people, you could picture a group of Pharisees ready to attack anything Jesus says, and Jesus is using this moment to refute the self-righteous legalism of the religion of the day. And so he's forcing the multitudes to, to, uh, to make a decision. Will they follow Jesus, or will they follow the self-righteous legalism of the Pharisees? And so as we read this, we're like, well, I'm not sure that this has anything to do with self-righteous legalism. But I think it fits in really well, and the first way it fits in really well, and the first way it's uh, related to the main theme of self-righteousness, is because in that culture, 
It was thought that great wealth was a sign that you were being blessed by God. So if you had amassed or hoarded together a a great amount of wealth, that meant you were righteous. In fact, you were more righteous than those poor, because obviously God's not blessing the poor, so they must not be righteous. This is a struggle humanity has had all the way back to Job. And one of the main themes of Job is that God doesn't just bless you or because he thinks you're righteous. That you can be righteous and be poor, and you can be absolutely be wi- wicked and be wealthy. So that was th- the thought of the day, that you were blessed, you were righteous if you were wealthy. So you might as well store up your wealth to prove that you are more righteous than those simple people, those wicked people that were in poverty. This is also related because we just came off of a whole section where Jesus was saying, do not be like the hypocrite. Do not be like the hypocrite. Do not be like the hypocrite. And here, we don't see him say, use the term hypocrite, but he's still giving us instruction on do not lay up for yourself. So he's still giving us instruction on do not lay. Before he was kind of addressing the hypocrite and how the hypocrite shows off their religiosity, don't be like the hypocrite who, who's trying to prove that they're more righteous than the rest of the world by these religious acts that they were doing. But now he's saying don't be like the hypocrite who is trying to relate to the world by showing off their righteousness in different relational ways. And one of the relational ways that they tried to show off their righteousness was through their wealth. And so he's, he's still instructing and he's still refuting the self-righteousness. But now it's in these relationships that he has turned his attention to. And so we're going to see how, uh, how wealth and self-righteousness are related. So he starts off, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So this first part was, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. It is literally, do not treasure treasures. So if you were to to read the Greek, it would just literally say, do not treasure treasures. The idea is to amass great amounts of wealth. Now it's important that we note what he is not saying is that making money is wrong. He's not saying, do not make money. And he's also not saying, or, or even saying, do not make a lot of money. He's not saying that it's wrong to make a lot of money. He's simply saying, do not treasure the treasures of the earth. So it's okay to make a lot of money. But don't treasure that money up. Do not pursue wealth for the sake of hoarding it for yourself. That is the warning here. And the warning is because all of this wealth, all of the earthly treasures that we treasure, will be destroyed. So in that culture, wealth wasn't safe. There were several different ways that you might want to try to store your wealth. If you stored it as food, it could be eaten by insects. If you stored it as coin, it could rust. If you stored, maybe sometimes people would invest it in like clothing because clothing was expensive. And maybe you could turn around and sell it for a profit. But that could be eaten by moth. If you found a place to hide it in your house, a thief could break in and steal it. So the the treasures of those days were perishable. Now, aren't you thankful that our wealth is safe today? There's no theft today. 
You don't have to worry about inflation, depreciating the value of your savings. You don't have to worry about that, right? Your wealth is safe. Or maybe not. But we tend to think that it is, don't we? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as perishable as it was in that culture. But our wealth still isn't as safe as we'd like to think it is. The major difference, I think, between Jesus' audience and us is that we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking that we have a lot more control in this world than we actually do. Because we have banks and we have governments that insure our finances, we think we can hoard our finances up and our hordes of wealth will be untouchable. Our hordes of wealth will be safe. So we don't have to worry about moth and rust and thieves. But all that is really just an illusion. We don't actually have control. And even if we did, we couldn't take it to the grave. The treasures you have here on earth, the wealth that you amass here on earth, is temporary. So don't treasure these treasures on earth. Then Jesus gives us instruction on where our treasures should be. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So instead of treasuring treasures on earth, we treasure our treasures in heaven. (coughs) Treasures in heaven will be eternal, not temporary. They'll not be destroyed, cannot be eaten or stolen. They are permanent. To treasure treasures in heaven means to align our values with what God values. To invest our time, our talent, our treasures in what God values. So God values his creation. The people that are made in his image. He values the spread of the gospel. He values truth spoken in love. And these are eternal treasures that he values. And that we can use our earthly treasures to have an eternal impact. So I've got a rope here. And I like to bring this rope out every now and then. Uh, We pretend, sometimes we play pretend in this church. But we pretend that this rope lasts forever. It is an eternal rope. Right? It stretches on for all of eternity that way. And it stretches on for all of eternity that way. And on this rope, if we, if we were to zoom in on this rope of eternity, we would see your life. Now, if we were to zoom out, your life would actually just be a little razor-thin sliver. To, or even understand your life, we've got to zoom in. And so we've zoomed in quite a ways, and we see your life right about here, where you're going to live maybe 90, maybe 100 years. Actually, this rope, I drew these lines out as my life, if I live to be 100. And we've got some marks here and there of some big events that have happened in my life. I'm about right here. Not quite yet to the halfway point. Well, about right here, getting close. What's amazing about this timeline is most of us treasure up treasures on earth. We hoard our treasures on earth and we save and we save and we invest in retirement and we just continue to invest in retirement so that we can enjoy this little tiny spot right here. 
So we've worked our whole lives hoarding up treasures on earth to enjoy a little sliver of time at the very end. Meanwhile, ignoring the eternal impact that we could make throughout the rest of eternity, you can make an investment that will impact eternity. And yet, oftentimes we get caught up in treasuring our treasures for this little bit right here. When we put it in that kind of perspective, to me, it helps remind me that I need to treasure up treasures in heaven. I need to use my earthly wealth to impact the treasures of heaven. So that's what he's saying, is that, uh, that all of this is just going to end. Uh, all of our treasures here on earth are just going to end, but we can actually value the same things as God. We can make investments that will impact eternity and that is where we should treasure it and he he continues with for your for where your treasure is there your heart will be also now notice he doesn't say where your heart will be there your treasure will be he says where your treasure will be there your heart will be and this is kind of an assessment a diagnosis of where your heart is What do you focus on? What do you treasure? That's actually where your heart is bent towards. So oftentimes, we think that we are like these good Christian people because we go to church. Sometimes we think we're good Christian people because we've got a lot of the Bible memorized or we really know our doctrine. And yet, throughout the week, our hearts are focused on a treasure here on earth instead of our treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. So just because you've done so and so, fill in the blank for your life, doesn't mean that you have a heart that's focused on heaven. You can, st- you can jump through all the hoops of religiosity and still have a heart that's focused here on earth. The Pharisees are a great example of how that went down. Man, did they know their scripture. Most of them had the first five books of the Bible memorized. How many of us are even close? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, I can put down my hand too. No way. They had their their doctrine down. They had their Bible memorized. They knew the religious things to do. And yet, their heart was focused on earth. And their heart was focused on the treasures of earth. And that's how we can tell. So where's your heart today? Are you focused on the things of heaven? Or are you focused on the things of earth? Where your treasure is, what are you storing up? What are you investing in? Are you investing in eternal impact? Or are you investing for your retirement? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. He goes on to explain this a little bit more, and, and he gives us a metaphor to help us visualize this. This metaphor is interesting. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus turns to the senses of how we interact with the physical realm to give us this metaphor. Now, I have, in all honesty, I've just had bad senses, right? I have a bad sense of taste. I have a bad sense of touch. Uh, I I like spicy food just because I can't taste. If it's not spicy, I kind of have a hard time tasting it. I have bad hearing. I worked at an airline for several years. I should have worn, like, way more earplugs than I wore. Earplugs plus earmuffs is what I should have done. I also have a bad sense of smell. If you stink and you're around me, that's okay. I probably can't smell you. So basically, the only way I navigate through life is through my sight. That, like, if my sight goes, I'm out of luck. So most of us rely heavily on our sight, but that's not the only way to navigate through the world. So if you don't navigate through the world through sight, you could think of this metaphor in a different way. But Jesus is giving us a way that we navigate through the world to make the point. And the point Jesus is making is if, we, if what you use to navigate through the world is corrupt and is easily tricked, then you will not be able to properly navigate through the world and you will not be able to see what really matters in this world. If how you navigate the world is corrupt then you won't be able to see what really matters. So we might call this a worldview, right? If how you see the world, if your worldview is corrupt, if how you think the world operates is off, if how you think the world operates is actually wicked, then you will never really understand what matters in this world. And therefore, you will spend your time chasing the wind. You will spend your time chasing things that don't actually matter. However, if how you navigate the world is healthy, if you have a healthy worldview, we might call this a biblical worldview, then that will affect how you value everything else in this world and how you spend your time and what you focus in on. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get everything right, but you will be heading on the correct path. And you will begin to value the things that matter to Christ. So this last line, if then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? This is basically Jesus saying, if your sight is bad and you don't even know it, that's the worst place you could possibly be. Because you don't understand how incredibly off you are. You think you are living in light, but really you are in darkness. And this is the most dangerous place to be because you're so lost that you don't even realize you're lost. Now remember, this is a refutation against the Pharisee's self-righteousness, right? These were the religious leaders, those who were zealous for the law, who all the multitudes looked up to, who seemed like they had it all together, who knew the scriptures and were passionate about the scriptures. And that was actually part of the problem. Because they knew scripture so well, 
because they were looked up to, because they were thought of as so high in their society, because it looked like they had it all together, they couldn't even realize how wrong they were. They were so entrenched in their own self-righteousness that they couldn't see that they were blind. So instead of looking towards Scripture as a mirror to accurately assess themselves, they used it as a weapon to undermine others as they would build themselves up. And that's how they would use Scripture. I like how 1 Corinthians 13, 12 paints the picture of Scripture. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I love this because it paints this picture of Scripture actually being a mirror. That as we look into Scripture, as we read Scripture, it actually reflects who we are. And so instead of using Scripture as a, as a tool to beat others up with, we should be using Scripture as a mirror to reflect on, on ourselves. We read it and we submit to it and we say, wait, does this, how does this apply to me personally? Instead of saying, how can I use this to beat someone else up with? We look at it as a mirror. And then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Because God fully knows you, and all Scripture is inspired by God. As you read Scripture, it interacts with the Holy Spirit that's indwelling in you, and as you use it as a mirror to reflect on yourself, it begins to actually change who you are from the inside out. So one of the solutions to self-righteousness is to look towards Scripture as a mirror instead of a club. Look more into Scripture asking, how do I mold my life to this? And less like, how can I use this to prove how righteous I am? And when we do that, we begin to see what matters in life. We begin to reorient what we value in life. So it's easy to convince ourselves that we are doing what God has called us to do. For me, and I know a lot of other pastors, the struggle is actually leaving family for ministry. I know a lot of pastors that have sacrificed their family on the altar of ministry because sometimes it feels like the more godly thing to do. Because God has called you to ministry, so you need to be involved in more Bible studies. You need to go spend more time with the congregation. But when I see things clearly, it helps me to actually spend more time with my family, who God has called me to minister to first before the congregation. And it helps me to say no. Even when it feels like it's the holier thing to do. Because I see what God values. Now that's pastors. But maybe you've got a different struggle. Maybe for you, it's how you spend your talent. God has given you an incredible talent. And you have used it to glorify yourself. But when you reorient 
your worldview with the Bible, you begin to value your talent in different ways. And you begin to give it to God's glory. Maybe it is how you spend your treasures. And you've been working your whole life, saving up these massive amounts of money, all for this little part of your retirement at the very end. And maybe God is calling you to sponsor a pizza once a month so that someone can come to know Christ. Whichever it is, it's easy for us to think we have it aligned. But if we are living in pride, we can't even see how wrong we are. The cure then is brokenness before God. To realize that there are so many optical illusions, that these are parallel lines, not crooked lines, that the lines aren't even moving, that the triangle isn't actually a triangle. That we have faulty vision. And when we realize that, then we come before God in brokenness and in dependency upon Him. So the cure to our eyes being bad is to recognize that our eyes can be bad. And you go to the physician who can cure your worldview. Jesus continues, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when I was younger, I worked with a guy at that airline that I worked for. I worked with a guy that worked three full-time jobs. Now some of you are asking, is that even possible? And yes, there is enough time in the week to work three full-time jobs. Now, at my job, I caught him sleeping a lot. He never did get fired for sleeping on the job, but he did sleep a lot on the job. He did it. He actually worked three full-time jobs. Now, most of us aren't that ambitious or that crazy, but some of us work two jobs, and we can make it work. But Jesus isn't saying you can't work two jobs. He's saying you can't serve two jobs masters. So a slave served his master all day, every day. A slave was at the disposal of his master all the time. There was no time off. There was no vacation. The slave was to attend to his master at all times. So if you're attending to one master at all times, there's no physical way you can serve another. It just isn't possible. So Jesus is saying, it's not possible. Even if you tried, you would eventually serve one and you would despise the other. The word despised in Greek is kataphreneo. It means to have contempt for, to look down upon, or scorn because the thing or the person is thought to have no value. So trying to serve two masters, you will eventually begin to hate one because you are serving it and yet you think that it has no value value. I think in America, we still struggle with thinking that we can serve two jobs because we can pull it off. And what Jesus is saying is when you're serving God and you're serving money, it's not working two different jobs. 
you are bowing the knee either to God or you are bowing the knee to money. And you can't do it either at, at some point in your life, you will either ultimately just collapse or you will end up hating, despising the one because you think it has no value. So these are stern words from Jesus. This is a stern warning. So how do you know if you're that blind, that, that you, you're living with a foot in both worlds and you don't even know it because you're so blind? I think one of the tools is to ask yourself, what am I focused on? Where is my heart? What do I think about all the time? Another way to, to know is to ask yourself, if I lost all my wealth, all my treasures, my prestige, my family, my car, my title, my audience, if I lost fill in the blank, could I still praise God? Another tool is to ask, what makes me anxious? What do I have anxiety about? We'll get more into that question next week. So some of you will hear this sermon and some of you will get inspired and you'll go home and you'll look at your budget and you'll think, okay, I need, I've been saving my whole life for this retirement. I need to refocus and look at the eternal. I want to reorient things. But then you look at your budget and you think, but there's no room in the budget. And I think that's exactly the point. Our budgets reflect our values. So where does your money go? When you budget, when you set your budgets, what do you prioritize? What do you look towards first? Where are you going to put your money to first? What do you do with the money that's left over? Do you have any money left over? As church, we create a budget every year and we vote on it. That budget reflects the values of this church. The same is true for your house. So I want to challenge you to take some time this month. Before the end of the year, look at your budget and ask, who is my master? Your budget will reflect your values. Ask, who is my master? God or money? God or the comforts of this world? God or my retirement? You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one or you will despise the other. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we don't have to prove our righteousness by amassing wealth, but that you have already made us righteous. And we pray that you would help us to have an eternal perspective on the wealth that you have given us. That we would align our budgets with your values. And that we would have a heart where the treasures are in heaven. Because where our treasures are, there our heart is as well. In your name we pray. Amen.